Today we read from Zephaniah 2. Gather together. Gather yourselves together, you shameful nation, before the decree takes effect and that day passes like wind-blown chaff. Before the Lord's fierce anger comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's wrath comes upon you, seek the Lord, all you humble of the land. You who do what He commands, seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you will be sheltered on the day of the Lord's anger. Gaza will be abandoned and Ashkelon left in ruins. At midday, Ashdod will be emptied and Ekron uprooted. Woe to you who live by the sea, you Carathite people. The word of the Lord is against you, Canaan, land of the Philistines. He says, I will destroy you and none will be left. The land by the sea will become pastures, having wells for shepherds and pens for flocks. The land will belong to the remnant of the people of Judah. There they will find pasture. In the evening they will lie down in the houses of Ashkelon. The Lord their God will care for them. He will restore their fortunes. I have heard the insults of Moab and the taunts of the Ammonites who insulted my people and made threats against their land. Therefore... As surely as I live, declares the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, surely Moab will become like Sodom, the Ammonites like Gomorrah, a place of weeds and salt pits, a wasteland forever. The remnant of my people will plunder them. The survivors of my nation will inherit their land. This is what they will get in return for their pride for insulting and mocking the people of the Lord Almighty. The Lord will be awesome to them when He destroys all the gods of the earth. The distant nations will bow down to Him, all of them in their own lands. You Cushites too will be slain by my sword. He will stretch out His hand against the north and destroy Assyria, leaving Nineveh utterly desolate and dry as the desert. Flocks and herds will lie down there. Creatures of every kind, the desert owl and the screech owl, will roost in her columns. Their hooting will echo through the windows. Rubble will fill the doorways. The beams of cedar will be exposed. This is the city of revelry that lived in safety. She said to herself, I am the one and there is none besides me. What a ruin she has become, a lair for wild beasts. All who passed her will scoff and shake their fists. Thank you, David. You know, I have the Bible on CD. I listen to it sometimes. And David, you read a lot better than that guy. You're good. <laughs> well, good morning. Uh, as Nancy mentioned, my name is Doug Gamble. Um, as I look out across the crowd this morning, there's a number of faces that I don't know, but many that I do. Um, we've been coal missionaries since 1999, working with students and international schools in Costa Rica. Been back for little smidgens of time, but never for any extended time. My wife and I see our presence here now as sort of an extended furlough. But 
But it wouldn't be right for me to start here today without thanking those of you, those familiar faces out there, for so many years of faithful friendship and encouragement and prayers and support. I think of Dixie Douglas. I, don't, I wish everybody in this room could have gotten a letter from Dixie Douglas. We got lots of them. Um, her hand, I'll never forget her handwriting and just her sharing of her life with us and sharing of her prayer. What a blessing. And uh, I'm glad her suffering is over and she's, she's where she belongs. And so it's wonderful to think about that as much as we'll miss her. Um, in, uh, a writer named H. Jackson Brown, I found this little book this summer. When he turned 50, he got reflective and he got perspective on his life. He said, I better write down some of the things that 50 years has shown me. So he began to write down these little one-liners of what he'd learned, published them in a little newspaper column, and he began to solicit them from others. He said, hey, why don't you share yours? What, what perspective have you gained from your time on this earth? I want to read a few of them to you. Um, one man who was 45 wrote in, he says, I've learned on the, that on the stock market, bulls and bears make money, but hogs get slaughtered. Um, one man who was 82 said, I've learned that even when I have pains, I don't have to be one. A sobering one from a 27-year-old said, I've learned that you can do something in an instant that will give you a heartache for life. 11-year-old wrote in, I've learned that when I'm in trouble at school, I'm in more trouble at home. 7-year-old I've learned that you can't hide a piece of broccoli in a glass of milk. <laughs> my, fa- my favorite one, I think, though, is uh, this 53-year-old wrote in. He says, after the age of 50, you get the furniture disease. That's when your chest falls into your drawers. <laughs> I had one of those moments. Uh, I've got to tell this story. I apologize, Ellie. But Ellie's my daughter's here. She's 15 now. But when she was four or five, we were down in Costa Rica, and she came to me and said, Daddy, can we get a cat? And you know, there's certain moments just throw things into perspective in your life. And, Daddy, can we get a kitty cat? And I had to explain. I said, Ellie, I'm sorry. I, I'm allergic to cats. I get, a, get into the room where there's cats. I get all stuffed up. And I get sore throats. It's a mess. I'm sorry we can't get a cat. Five minutes later, I hear her in the kitchen with my wife, Laura, and she says this, and I quote, Mom, when Daddy dies, can we get a cat? (laughs) Let's know where you stand in the scheme of things, you know. (laughs) Zephaniah's words have the effect of throwing things into perspective. Rod introduced it last time. His main theme, and more than any of the other prophets, He hits one theme, kind of like a piece of music all through here. And the theme is the day of the Lord. It's a day of judgment and a day of reckoning. Reckoning. Um, It's tempting to try to figure out when is it going to be. But if you look carefully through the whole book of Zephaniah, it's not clear. He seems to be talking about it as a local judgment and sometimes then as a personal judgment and then as a global thing. It's not clear. And we know from Jesus that we don't know the day or the hour that it's coming. So our focus shouldn't be on the when, but on the what and on the why. You know, for years I've been a literature teacher, and whenever we get to the end of a a good book, we talk about what makes a good ending. Because the day of the Lord is an ending of our time on earth, right? And what makes a good ending? And I come to the conclusion with my students, 
that a good ending is when you get to that last page, that last word, and you go, of course, but I didn't see it coming. Oh, it makes sense. Oh, now that, oh, that, oh yeah, that guy, oh, of course, but you couldn't see it coming. And that's, what, that's sort of what Isaiah, excuse me, Zephaniah is trying to bring us to focus on, on that. So as we get into the text, let's pray. Father, thank you for Zephaniah and his faithfulness to declare to us what you declared to him. Render our hearts teachable today and help us to see things from your perspective and to respond to them with your heart. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I think the first thing probably we should comment on is that it's called the day of the Lord. His day. It's His day because time belongs to God. From Genesis 1 when it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And then He talks about the sun and the moon and the days. Time is a part of His creation. Okay? He's, not inside, he, he's outside of time. It's a part of His creation. It belongs to Him just as much as the mountains and the sun and the moon. And you and I belong to Him. Any time we have, we are allowed to have because He... He loans it to us. We can get possessive, can't we, sometimes of our time. But that, that phrase shouldn't even be in our language. It's not our time. It's His. It belongs to Him. What we perceive as interruptions are often simply God manifestly asserting Himself and using time as He sees fit. Now this helps us to be patient, but it also can sharpen our vision to recognize when God's at work. When things aren't necessarily convenient or aren't sort according to the time that we had laid out. Wait, wait a minute. I, well, maybe God's up to something here. Using His time as the way He wants to. Simple examples. Bad traffic. Maybe God wants you to spend a little more time in prayer. That's safer than texting or talking on the phone. Maybe He wants you to have a conversation with that other person in the seat next to you. Illness. God's slowing us down. Teaching us all sorts of things. God's in charge of time. It's His. It belongs to Him. The passage also alerts us to the fact that time is linear. And it goes in one direction. It's not like East, some of the Eastern belief systems say that life is circular or cyclical. No. It has a beginning, a middle, and it began in Genesis 1.1. It'll, it'll end one day on what Zephaniah calls the day of the Lord. The clock will run out. And we don't... It, it, when you're young, you don't even think about it. When you're older, you sometimes or you deny it. We don't like to think about this, or we think it's unnatural, but in fact, we, we see it all the time. We experience it all the time. And it, since I'm talking to a Boise, Idaho group, and I'm using athletic metaphors here, I have to talk about the 2007 Fiesta Bowl, right? Everybody knew that last play on overtime... That, that time was up. There was no plays after that. Okay? And so what are the players thinking when they go in to that last moment? They're not thinking about what's for dinner. They're not thinking about, I wish my helmet had a little bit darker blue. They're not thinking about the mountains or about the mall. They're thinking about executing the play that they've been trained to run at this moment. Okay? And they did it beautifully. Zabransky fakes to the right, holds the ball in his bag, Johnson grabs it into the end zone, they win undefeated, beat Oklahoma, Fiesta Bowl champions, right? But my point is how that fact that the clock was running out brings things into perspective. Think of basketball. 
30 seconds left, 15 seconds left, coach calls timeout. What, what's important then? Do you know the play that the coaches had you practice 475 times for this moment? Or were you checking, the, checking out the cheerleaders? You know? Do you know how to set that pick that he wants you to set? Can you come off the pick and make that shot? Or, if it comes down to it, have you practiced enough free throws so that you can make them under the crunch time? Clocks running out have a way of revealing what's important. All the preparation for that time, for the moment, for the opportunity. As the clock runs out, it becomes very clear whether we have prepared well or not. Will we be glad and thankful for what we have invested our lives in when the clock runs out? And what will we recognize has been a waste of our time, our energies, our passions, and our resources? Let's go to the verses of the text now. Um, you'll see in verses 1 through 3, there's, some, there's uh, some actions that Zephaniah wants us to take in response to this. But I'm going to come back to those verses towards the end. I want to draw your attention to verse 4. And unfortunately in the NIV it's not there, but the first word of verse 4 really is the word for. For Gaza will be abandoned. It literally means because Gaza. This is the because of verses 1, 2, and 3. So I want to look at those first and then we'll go back to what Zephaniah is going to urge us to do. Verses 4 through 7 cover what we call Philistia, the Philistine territory. Ascalon, Ashton, Ekron. These were the commercially successful cities over on the west coast of the Mediterranean. Commercially successful but historical enemies of God. The Canaanites came from there. A couple of famous names you may recognize who were from there. Goliath. He was kind of the one that challenged up front. But then there were more subtle ones because Delilah brought down Samson, came from there too. Historical enemies. And God says, that, all that flashy coastal stuff you got going over there is going to be pasture land. The judgment will come upon you. Okay? Think if you were going to sort of overlay uh, uh, our geography on this one. We're in Boise. Think West Coast. Cities. Seattle, San Francisco, L.A. And some of the character, characteristics that pull from there and you're getting some kind of flavor of what Zephaniah is talking about. Verses 8 through 11, he swings over to the Transjordan, over to Moab and Ammon, off to the east. So he goes from west to east. The judgment there concerns their attitude toward God and God's people. He says they scoff at his people, they taunt them. And I don't know if you noticed it, but a lot of times in, as the scriptures unfold, God's judgment is sort of a reversal of things, and here that's the case. They kind of put their stuck their nose up and said, "Ah, yeah, you believe in God, big deal." But what happens here? They will end up kneeling to God. God will be awesome to them. A number of years ago, I don't know if they still have the air show over here at Gowan Field, but we took the little kids and went to an air show, and and the the Blue Angels were there, and they took off, and we thought we thought they were done. We sort of waved goodbye. Little did I know, they'd swung way out over Mountain Home and came screaming back in. I swear it was about 12 feet off the ground. And they were so close, you couldn't hear them until they were virtually on, I, they were virtually on top of you. My back crawl, I really had a hard time not just falling fl- face down on the pavement out there. And I thought, wow, 
every knee is going to bow. This is sort of a prelude to what Paul says, that every knee is going to bow to God. We won't be able to help it. Okay, That's Moab and Ammon. Verse 12 is one verse for Cush. Cush is Egypt. Now, I'll get back to this in a minute, but I, need to, I just want to appeal for a prayer for Egypt now. What a mess. Lots of suffering. Lots of suffering of Christians and everybody else. It's a threatening chaos. I know God has a purpose, but one of the purposes is to call us to prayer for those people. So, so let's please not forget those people at this time. Back to the historical Egypt. Super, ancient superpower, right? We're talking the pyramids and the pharaohs and the oppression of God's people. Huge, huge. But you know what? It's almost as though Zephaniah says, oh, this big, long, powerful history, one short little verse is all you get. It's it for you. In Hebrew, it's just six words. You're going down. Then he goes, so we've gone from west coast, out east, south to Egypt, and now he goes to north to Assyria in the next series of verses from 13 to the end of the chapter. Assyria was the current superpower, the most powerful people on the face of the planet at the time. They were brutal warriors. They controlled much of the ancient world, but if you look, the focus is here is on their arrogance. They say in verse 15, uh, talking about Nineveh. Nineveh was the city, okay? The, the New York or the L.A., the Paris, the London of the day, okay? And uh, it says, This is the city of revelry that lived in safety. She said to herself, I am the one and there is none besides me. Whoa, thick, thick arrogance. Reminds me of John Lennon at one point when the Beatles were big. He said, oh, we're bigger than Jesus now. Can you imagine somebody saying about that? Did you get that? Imagine, John. Anyway. Okay. Nineveh. This really, was really hard for Zephaniah's audience to hear, I'm sure. Because it's like us saying, New York's going down. It's not going to be there for very long. And we, Yeah, right. But you know what? It wasn't long before Nineveh was gone. The, the uh, Babylonians flattened it a few years later. And within 200 years when Greece was coming into its big heyday, they didn't even know about Nineveh. It disappeared from the cultural landscape. The ruins were discovered in 1840. Okay? It's hard. Zephaniah's words are already in the past tense, though he's predicting the future. He says, what a ruin she has become. And we think, no way. But you know what? There's a lot of people envisioning these kind of things. And the big culture that's so flashy... God is going to judge it too. I don't know if any, if, if any of you saw, a few months ago I saw that t- new Tom Cruise, Tom Cruise movie called Oblivion. There's been a, some kind of galactic war and stuff. And, and, uh, and they walk into New York. Well, let's pick one of these. Let's say one of these is the Empire State Building. New York is covered in ashes and soot and everything else. Tom Cruise and his wife walk in on dry ground to the top floor of the Empire State Building. It's and they walk in and look at the observation tower out there. Okay, that's a, sort of a picture of what Zephaniah says about Nineveh and what the day of the Lord brings to the globe. That's an idea of the power and the scope of the day of the Lord. Now, typically, there are a number of responses 
when we think for ourselves or talk to others about this day of judgment. And I think it's important to talk about a few of those responses and unpack them just for a few minutes. First, Christians and non-Christians alike can be tempted to, to think of God as sort of prejudiced in this judgment. Um, how could a good God do such a thing? It seems like he's just trying to get back at all these people who are having too much fun without him. Right? But of course, that's, that's a skewed view. That's looking at God through a human lens. Um, we see God as sort of being pushed around by his own anger, his own emotion. He's like a violent, alcoholic father erupting at his son who spills milk at the dinner table. That's the way we kind of interpret that. How could God be like that? But he's not like that. That's not the way it is at all. God's not controlled by emotions like we can be. What he removes, he removes not because it threatens him, but because it's corrupt, it's unholy, and because it threatens the people he loves. Nothing is arbitrary, unjust, impetuous, or petty when it comes to God. God always does it just right. Another response uh, to the idea of the day of the Lord, uh, this one's a little more legitimate. It's that we get scared of it because it seems so big. This huge thing. And it makes us feel small and out of control. But there's something important to learn from Zephaniah here. It's kind of a secret, but I'll share the secret with you. You and me, we're small. We really are quite little. And that's okay. Because God is very big and very good. We get into trouble. We get into trouble when we think we're too big. Zephaniah is encouraging us to be comfortable with that. Yeah, we're small. Yeah, it's an awesome, scary thing. But God is good, so we'll be okay. It's all right. Third, we can recoil from the idea of the day of the Lord because we fear we're going to lose something that we want or lose something that we have. Maybe you've said it to yourself or you've heard somebody else say, yeah, I want God to come back, yeah, but not before I, not before I get my career up and running, not before I get married and have sex and have a nice family, not before I get that nice house and I'm able to live in it for a while. But when God comes back, that career, that house, that sex, you know what it's going to look like? Well, let's see. Eight-track tapes. <laughs> Wait a minute. Some of you, I, I missed some of you. Uh, cassette tapes. <laughs> Computers that take floppy disks. How many of those you got in your garage? You know, I mean, that you or you should throw out, or that you try to you pay somebody else to take off your hands at the garage sale, right? When God comes back, whoa, that stuff is just going to look like junk. The stuff we get so enamored of is just going to look like junk in comparison because it's God. Oh my goodness, that'll be so thrilling, so enthralling that the other says, "Why am I hanging on to that?" You know, that's really so. We don't need to fear that. We don't need to fear it because it's just going to be good stuff. That music we're going to hear, we're going to hear from God. Whoa, better than anything on your digital recording device. It's not that God wants us 
doesn't want us to have fun, and therefore he judges sin. It's that sin is destructive. And God's determined to do what's best for us. The stuff that hurts us. That stuff is a pathway to ugliness, illness, destruction. But we, it fools us, right? And we, we, we think it gives us life. And he's going to say, no, no, stop. On the day of the Lord, all injustice and oppression will be taken care of. It's going to be straightened out once and for all. Were you ever in school and had, uh, maybe you studied really hard for a quiz or a test and some, some other guy over there, some joker over there, didn't study at all, bragged about not studying, and suddenly he comes out with a great score on that thing and you realized it was because he cheated and the teacher just sort of looks the other way? <clears throat> I hate that when that happens. You know what? It's all going to be taken care of. Nobody gets away with it. And, okay, okay. God's going to straighten it all out. This is the blessing of the day of the Lord. So much of our fretting, he's going to, it's going to be okay. He's going to take care of it. There's not going to be any more abuse, no more manipulation, no more racism, no more addiction, no more wars, no more porn, no more corruption, no more manipulation. Wow, that's, that's the beauty of it. But we have to be careful. The day of the Lord comes to those guys, but it comes to this guy too. We are often real blind to the waywardness of our hearts. Our eyesight is too corrupt to clearly see our own corruption. Unfortunately, a, an example of this, a, sort of a metaphor of it, came home to me a few years back. We came home to Colorado for a, my, my, my father-in-law, my wife's father's 90th birthday party. Big gathering in Colorado Springs. I was able to borrow my dad's old pickup from Nevada. And, uh, and I had to go pick up several, several groups of people at the airport, at the Denver airport. I'd been out of the States for a number of years. I didn't know how things worked. I hadn't been, wasn't used to the roads. Anyway, I get on the highway, and, I, all, and I'm worried I'm kind of late. But I see, ah, there's a new road to the airport. It's a toll road. I think, I'll try it. I don't know how much it's going to cost, but I'll try it. It might really help me out here because i got so many of these trips to take. It's about 9 o'clock at night. It's dark. And... Um, I take the road, keep driving, keep driving, pretty soon I'm at the airport, it's much shorter. Where was the toll booth? I never had to pay anything. So here's how my brain works. Ah, they're not done with it. It's brand new. They're just not ready for me yet. Just a pure bonus. So I'm giving thanks and saying, wow, save me. So I went and picked somebody up, came back, picked somebody else up, came back. I went over that toll road six times, six times. Year and a half later, visiting my dad out in Nevada. There's an oh, Dad said, oh, I forgot to tell you about this. There's some envelope here from the Highway Patrol of Colorado. I open it up. First thing I see, there are six digital photographs. I didn't even know they could do this. Of my license plate. With a fine for each one. And then a fine for not paying the fine. And then another fine for not paying that fine. I'm amazed they didn't arrest me when I got into the Colorado airport the very next time. 250 bucks. But you know what? Uh, nothing I can do. I didn't know about it, but it was there and it was real and it was valid. How many things in our life are like that? This, this brings us humility when it comes to the day of the Lord. It's not just you know, somebody else out there. 
that debt was gathering and I didn't even know it. So it gives us a pause as well. Now let me say that God's warning us throughout the scriptures tell us two important things about the nature of God that I think is important. First, God is giving us time and opportunity to prepare. Rod mentioned it last week. That word, the word for prepare for us in this situation is to repent. To stop, take stock of things, and to change our ways. We have time. You know what? It's an act of a loving God to warn us. He wouldn't be loving if He didn't warn us. See, we're about to, we will smack up against reality. And all the things that's just my truth versus your truth, that's, it's God's truth that matters. That's what we're going to smack into. And He's preparing us and warning us. And praise God that He loves us enough to warn us. Some of, sometimes we can get this idea that God's going to spring, aha, cut you. No way. He's laying it out for us. So we have time and ability to be ready when the clock runs out. Praise God for that. It's a good and loving part of His character. Second, the fact that He warns us tells that there is, that there is more to this life than this world. I mean, think about it. If there's not more, why is He warning us? If, 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 if this just comes some kind of physical end where we become worm food and part of that great circle of life kind of thing, if that's all it really is, why warn us about it? He warns us because this world is just the prelude, the introduction to life as God has designed it, far beyond the grave, beyond the day of the Lord. So that's also part of God's grace, okay? To, to let us know, hey, there's more here than you may be seeing, and you can be ready for it. This brings us back to the beginning of the chapter and to what Zephaniah tells us in, to respond to this. If you look in verses 1 through 3 of the chapter, he has four commands. The first command is, gather together. Seems a little bit counterintuitive. Why, what? Why is he telling us to gather at this time? But we're so prone to wander when we're on our own, to get distracted, off track. We are called to gather to help sharpen each other, to help course correct, to help get the train back on the tracks. When I pray, when I pray with others, I am brought up against things that I hadn't even been thinking about. And especially, I've noticed this when I pray with other believers in, in, in Costa Rica and Latin America. They have a tendency to pray a lot longer than I do. I'm kind of interested in efficiency, not them. Okay? In fact, we have a family complaint that there's a pastor gives a sermon, then he comes back up later and gives a prayer that's as long as the sermon. You know? But when I kneel down with some peop- somebody and pray, when I sit with them and pray with somebody like that, my walk with God is deepened because they're laying details of their life, of their concerns out in ways that I just gloss over. Or when I serve with some of you out in the field or in church or somewhere, and I see your enthusiasm and your, your, your creativity, I'm humbled and realize I'm just kind of lazy. And so I'm brought up in a way that helps me draw closer and tap more deeply into my relationship with God. But it's not just getting together because, you know, the good old boys do that, pat each other on the back and say, aren't you a fine one? No, we have to gather intentionally with the idea of really helping each other grow up. A question that comes to me out of the text is, have I 
really challenged a fellow believer in any meaningful way lately? Have I helped them take steps forward in his or her walk with God? And of course, the, the other, other half of it is there too. Have I been open to challenge? Have I accepted some correction or, or uh, admonishment? You know, we've all, whether we have done it or we've seen the patterns of what I call from the Cold War era, massive retaliation. Sometimes you suggest something to somebody and they just blow up. They just unload the truck on you. Well, that's a defense mechanism which is basically saying, don't you ever challenge me again. Okay? But that's not the Christian way. That's not the Christian way. It's, hey, accept what's there, apply it to our lives. Are we challengeable? That's part of what it means to be intentionally gathering with other believers, right? And, and too often I just find that either I'm not challengeable or I'm frankly distracted and disinterested. Oh, shame on me. Shame on me. Gather together, God says. The next command in that passage in verse 3 says, Seek the Lord. That's all he says. Now, for some of us, that might be, Oh, yeah, I know exactly how to go about that. For others, well, how do you do that? I think he actually answers it in the next verse. He says to seek righteousness. Righteousness is a word that gets a bad, you know, this whole idea of being self-righteous and all that kind of stuff. But it's a really good word. All it really means is doing the right thing, in the right way, at the right time, for the right reason. We've all either used or been victims of somebody doing the right thing for the wrong reason. I mean, you can tell the truth to somebody in order to wound them if you want. That's just an example. But when I really seriously think, I get up in the morning and think, okay, I want to do the right thing in the right way, at the right time, and for the right reason, (sighs) can't do it. Sorry. I'm inadequate for that. And that's right. So what do you do with your inadequacy? What do I do with my inadequacy? God, (laughs) I need help. Oh, amen, that's the way it should work. And then God is the one who delivers the righteousness. Okay? Our trust of Him, way back in Genesis, from Abraham, God, it was, Abraham trusted God and it was reckoned to Him as righteousness. Okay? That's where the righteousness comes from. When we, when we go out in a good faith effort and realize that we're not adequate, we seek God to come in and create blessing where we're not able to. That's the only way it's going to happen. And then the last command is to seek humility. I think, first of all, this has to mean that we become comfortable in our smallness, as we talked about before. Not try to be bigger than we actually are and be okay with that. Be okay with the bigness of God, with His adequacy, and with our failings. Aware of our frailty. It's all going to come under the power of the day of the Lord, whether it's New York or New Plymouth. It's all going to be there. There's no room for Christian swagger, as uh, John Piper puts it. We're all needy and in forgiveness. The joy of the Christian is not the joy of, aha, we got it right and you're wrong. No. That shows we don't have it right. <laughs> right? It's a broken-hearted joy because we're all naked and needy at the foot of the cross. All of us. Some of us have been close enough to get the blood spattered on us and some of us not yet. That's all that means. And so that's, the, that's our re- relationship with, with those others is to help bring them under the shadow of the cross.
You know, John was, the Apostle John the, was Jesus' closest friends among the disciples, Jesus' closest friend among the disciples. And he wrote his gospel last. Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote theirs earlier. John took more time. He pondered a little greater, for a greater period of time, all of his experiences with Jesus. And so it's always been intriguing to me to see what are the first words of Jesus that John put in his gospel. I mean, he spent years with the Master, with our Savior, and and then he he writes the gospel to help us have faith in Jesus, right? That's what he says his purpose is. But what are the first words he quotes in, of Jesus? Do you, does anyone remember? He says, it's in chapter 2, I believe, uh, it's right after Jesus' baptism, and John the Baptist has said, hey, there he is, the Lamb of God, and some of the guys who will soon be disciples are kind of following along, trying to kind of get caught up with Jesus. Jesus turns on him and says, what are you seeking? In the NIV, it's kind of watered down. They say, what do you want? But the word is seeking. Same word here, seek. What are you seeking? And then he stops and pauses. What are? That's a question that sits there and works on us. What am I really seeking? What am I honestly, what do my actions show that I'm seeking in my life? Am I seeking a bunch of stuff that's going to go down with Nineveh? Or am I seeking something that is going to be, that I'm going to be thankful to have sought when the clock runs out? These future disciples respond to him in sort of a formulaic way in terms of the Jewish tradition, and they say, Where are you staying? It's their sort of request to say, uh, Can we spend some time with you? And Jesus' next words are just beautiful, right? Come and see. Come and see. Try me out. Have a taste. Spend some time. That throws everything in, pers- in perspective. And that's, that's for us today, right? The day of the Lord puts things in perspective. What's really going to matter is what we've set deep into Christ. For ourselves, can we please seek the comfort and the person of Jesus at all costs, and I mean all, and invest our lives in helping others to do the same? Please. That's what's going to matter when the clock runs out. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for, again, for Zephaniah's words. I pray that all of us would be appropriately sobered and excited by what you are unfolding with history. And I pray that all of us would see you more clearly than we ever have and your beauty. And I pray that everybody in this room would embrace you in a new and deeper way because your forgiveness covers us. Help us to accept it and to walk in that truth and help us to move others to do so too because that's what really matters. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.